everybody. It's Martin Kinn again from the Shea meeting at uh, in Seattle, and uh, I managed to grab a few minutes with Professor Alexander Sunderman. Now, Alex works as professor in the University of Pittsburgh, right, right, and uh, he's done a lot of interesting stuff recently on whole genome sequencing, including a paper he published, I think it was late last year, on comparing NHSN data with the cumulative work of some whole genome sequencing. Can you talk a bit about that first, and then we'll talk about what you're going to be mentioning tomorrow? Yeah, so uh, I used to work as an infection preventionist in the hospital, and all IPs know the the struggle of using NHSN and interpreting true infections, truly hospital-acquired. Could you just explain that, though, because we've got a lot of international listeners. So NHSN? Yeah, NHSN, the National Healthcare Safety Network, it's a subdivision of our Centers for Disease Control, okay. and they, they set forth the standard definitions of what is a hospital-acquired, hospital-associated infection, uh, and the check-the-box definitions of how to actually report that. Did they get in the hospital, or did they come in with it? Uh, and we use that data for very important reasons, to, to track HAIs across the spectrum, to have a standard across the, the United States um, that we can report and, and follow. Um, but it's also been adapted somewhat uh, recently to also, as one of the many tools to look for trends of possible outbreaks or transmission or issues within a healthcare setting. Okay, and this, this is mandatory. Yeah, it's mandatory. So yeah, okay. if, you, if you want to participate in um, the Center, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Funding, uh, it's mandatory that your institution reports NHSN data to the CDC. Okay. Yeah. So it's it's not mandatory, but if if your if your institution wants the money, they they have to report <laughs> okay, it. So yeah. it's so normally yeah. quite a persuasive argument. Though, exactly. Okay. Exactly. So everyone, uh, all IPs in the in the U.S. are are well aware of the NHSN. Okay. Um, so we we like you said, we our research looks at whole genome sequencing surveillance to try to find transmission and outbreaks. And uh, as a former IP myself, I was curious. You know, uh, we have all this vast data of sequencing surveillance. Uh, how well does NHSN actually detect transmission when we're able to essentially sequence almost everything? So that was one of the questions I wanted to ask and. So I went back into our database where we had uh, two years of sequencing surveillance data of lots of different pathogens that, you know, we had investigated. There were outbreaks in the hospital uh, and there were transmission events. And I, and I looked to see which ones were actually reported as HAIs to NHSN because assumably, you know, these were infections that were acquired in the hospital. Um, so uh, looking at our data, we had about 300 patients almost that had transmission events uh, that were genetically related in a two-year period, uh, and about 55% uh, of those were not reported as HAIs to NHSN. Okay. Uh, and looking at those reasons why, obviously, is the next question, um, most of them were present on admission, uh, meaning it's not an HAI. So when IPs look at these definitions, they say, you know, the, there's day one, day two in the hospital admission. Uh, if that's when their positive culture date or symptoms appear, then it's community acquired and it's not an HAI. Yeah. Our criteria of collecting these infections and sequencing is, you know, after day three or a prior recent healthcare exposure. Uh-huh. So okay. the majority of these infections we're seeing transmitted are newly admitted patients who had a recent healthcare exposure 
and are now ill with this infection that was most likely transmitted. Okay. So there, there's a limitation in that. And also there's, uh, of course, limitations in um, standardizing definitions where a lot of the infections just didn't meet the definition of what an NHSN infection is. Okay. So it wasn't reported. Okay. So what sort of infections were not being picked up by NHSN then? Was, were they, was it across the board or was it courties or something like that? But- yeah. The, uh, the most we saw was pneumonia uh, for respiratory infections. Um, uh, for a lot of things, uh, when patients are on ventilators, uh, there's a certain criteria to meet uh, a PVAP, a, a possible ventilator-associated pneumonia. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if you don't meet certain criteria, the, the, the escalation stops. Okay. And it, it doesn't actually get reported. Um, so that it's, it's quite hard to report those sometimes. Uh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I suppose NHSN have got a set of standards that everybody can stick to and, and is reasonably detectable. But the fact that you're missing half. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, how, how would your hospital leadership take the fact that you were going to double your NHSN? your infection rate overnight then if you if you go down your way well the approach that we've had and it's been very successful is that by doing sequencing surveillance we're, we're still able to detect those transmissions and we intervene upon them mm. so uh it, it's not a widely used approach so by doing this our hospital is able to say you know we're going above and beyond the standard to actually find these infections and stop them from spreading because these are ones that are spreading. Yeah. Um, and we make a point to say, you know, NHSN is still a very valuable tool to track all HAIs. We're just interested in our uh, area about, like, you know, the, the transmission of HAIs, not necessarily the endogenous acquisition. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm wondering, is actually by detecting more, initially it may look like your numbers are higher than you had previously thought, but actually it gives you more opportunities to prevent and eventually then you would get down to much lower than you uh, exactly. Yeah. And that's what we try to model in our past papers is that, you know, if you were to intervene by doing sequencing surveillance, you actually are able to prevent some of these infections. And a lot of those are reported as HAIs. Mm. So your hospital has a good opportunity to reduce your HAI rate that's actually reported. Yeah. I mean, that's a good thing to me, giving yourself the most opportunity mm-hmm. to improve. Um, so you, you've done some work on clusters that I know you're going to present tomorrow. Right, right. Um, and those things like Proteus, who I normally don't really associate with outbreaks. Mm-hmm. So could you talk just a little bit about that? Because I thought that was just an interesting aspect of that. I mean, some of the others, you, you've got big clusters of many, many patients mm-hmm. and others, just small numbers of infections. And can you talk about the, the causes of those transmissions, you think? Yeah, it's interesting. So every time we detect an outbreak, which is weekly, we do weekly sequencing, we see on average about four patients with some type of infection that's clustering with a other isolate. And, and like you said, some of these have expanded across the year. Some of them remain small. And it's good that we're finding them at, you know, a cluster of two. Because yeah. that means we still have an opportunity to intervene and stop it from getting to a cluster of 10. Yeah. Um, so these clusters of twos, uh, a lot of them we see um, sh- uh, share a common endoscope. So we look at these two patients when we first detect similarity and say, what do they have in common? What's, what's uh, in common? And a few of these have the exact same endoscope that was used on both of them at a very close time frame. Mm. Uh, and often no unit or commonalities. They weren't on the same unit, didn't have any other similar procedures. So that tells us, let's pull the scope, let's look at it, investigate. Um, and so far with those endoscope ones, uh, it, the, the scope cluster never actually expands. We well, were able yeah, to I mean, stop that's, it. Yeah. I mean, presumably some of these you'll pick up when they come back in again and they'd had a previous endoscope as maybe an outpatient procedure exactly. or something like that that would get missed completely by normal routine surveillance. Exactly. It? And that happened in the past a lot with ERCP scopes. Those patients have it as an outpatient, present septic, and that's when it was eventually first detected years ago as a possible issue. Yeah, sure. 
Um, yeah. yeah, it's really detailed. So back to the Proteus again. What was that cluster related to? So we had a, uh, a few Proteus clusters. Um, the one that comes off the top of my mind is that we detected uh, a Proteus cluster. These patients were coming to us um, at an outside healthcare facility and being admitted to our hospital where, you know, they had a recent healthcare exposure. So we sequenced them. And when, when we looked them at our hospital, you know, there's nothing in common. They, they're different areas and everything. But we look at their community exposures and they're coming from the same skilled nursing facility. Okay. So in that sense, we're detecting transmission that's happening at other facilities. Yeah. And these patients come to us and we're able to detect that and, you know, go through the proper channels to notify them. Are they them. delighted about that? Uh, yeah, we, <laughs> we, get, uh, we get, usually get good feedback. The yeah. infection preventionists that we, we often keep in touch with are, are glad that we're doing it and, okay. and you know, uh, are, are happy that we're actually doing that. I mean, are they proactively saying, do let us know about this because we want to know about these anyway? Yeah, and a lot of the local facilities are realizing that we're doing the sequencing and, yeah. and are aware you know, uh, there's not a, there's sometimes multiple facilities or facilities with multiple occasions that we eventually have to contact. Because you're actually helping there with their surveillance for nothing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, it, uh, there's a lot that as an IP, we would get contacted by other facilities to say mm. like, hey, heads up, like this person developed an infection that might be on your SSI radar. So we are giving it to them to eventually report as well. Okay, too. that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, you say you do weekly sequencing, so that's how it works. So it's, it, that's the... The time scale is it any all the specimens done within that week you'd get a result within a few days can you talk about how that system yeah. works so uh, our average turnaround time from the time that a patient gets a culture at the bedside from a clinician to the time where we have sequenced analyzed investigated is about 14 days two okay. weeks um, so that uh, so twice a week um, actually I did it this morning uh, we query uh, using uh, one of our platforms possibly HAI infections of the bugs that we care about. Um, and we, I send them to our lab technicians, and they go down to our clinical building, collect those isolates, bring them back to our lab, and then uh, start the sequencing process in itself. So we do that twice a week um, and perform sequencing all throughout. Uh, and the sequencing itself is actually relatively quick. Uh, we can get it back in about a day or so. Um, we've automated our bioinformatics pipeline, which is how we analyze mm. to see what the clusters we're seeing. Uh, and then from there, those results get sent to me where I do an initial investigation uh, and, I, and then I share it with our infection prevention team where then they can actually perform the intervention based off of what okay. we found. And have you found anything interesting going through this? I mean, the scopes is a good one, for example, because yeah. you're picking up people having procedures elsewhere or previously and through outpatients. But has anything else interesting popped up from this that you weren't expecting? Something left field? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Plenty of things that we're discovering. Um, one comes to mind uh, briefly is uh, the, I mentioned it this morning at one of the sessions is a, a pseudo outbreak uh, related to autopsy. So we had these patients who had died at different facilities were brought to our facility for an autopsy and had blood cultures that were all genetically related post-mortem. So Obviously, there's nothing in common between them. So there's something in the Apart autopsy. Being dead. Right, yeah, yeah, right, right. So unfortunately, it's not a patient safety issue, but there's still a contamination issue. Yeah. So we watched the practice of an autopsy, observed and saw that there's some potential for contamination. It's obviously not a sterile process. No. We cultured the faucet where they actually rinse the table down where the, the patients have the autopsy and found matching isolates to that of the autopsy blood cultures. <laughs> so we're able to use this technology to pinpoint where we need to do environmental cultures to find the issues of what's actually happening. Yeah. Um, another one, uh, it's, it's pretty new. I get to mention it tomorrow. It's actually not in the slides yet. 
is there's this national outbreak of uh, extreme drug-resistant pseudomonas uh, related to contaminated eye drops in the United States right now. Highly resistant, um, few deaths, multi-states. Yeah, so I've been reading about that. And, uh, you know, we, were, we have this big database of pseudomonas aeruginosa at our house. And when the CDC posted an update of uh, here's the sequence type, which is a, a kind of like a reference for people to look at for um, sequencing, and a genome to compare from the outbreak, we ran it through our database and actually found that we, in October detected this cluster of Pseudomonas ruginosa. We had two patients. One was just an outpatient, had a long-term uh, ear infection that was really chronic, presenting as an outpatient. And this other uh, was admitted for a lot of uh, complex medical issues to our ICU. And we detected this cluster back in October and reviewed them, no commonalities. And when we ran this reference genome from the CDC, it matched completely uh -huh. wow. to this international, this national pseudomonas outbreak from contaminated eye drops. Reviewed the chart of the one outpatient, documented they had uh, eye drop use they ordered from Amazon preceding their infection. We weren't able to find eye drop use documented in the other patient's chart, but it was because of our genomic surveillance and public sharing of reference genomes that we were able to find this and report it to public health partners and do follow up. Okay. So, very useful. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. How did you get it funded? So currently, um, my faculty supervisor, Lee Harrison, he runs our Center for Genomic Epidemiology. He's had a successful career track in genomic epi, and we've um, had R01 funding from the NIH uh, for many years. Uh, we just had a renewal a couple of years ago as well uh, to, to do this type of work, to look at sequencing surveillance data, look at those outbreaks, um, to try to build this evidence base to show its usefulness and impactfulness on infection prevention yeah. to prevent outbreaks. So yeah. currently we're fully funded by the NIH to perform the sequencing at our hospital. Uh, okay. So it's like almost research funding because um, right. we had a chat earlier on this year, well, last year actually, with Pat Harris and um, Belinda Henderson and Trish Hurst from yes. Brisbane. Yeah, uh, yeah. And they were actually able through the use of the research lab there to uh, cut back on isolation for patients with a particular MRSA claim because they got no transmission in the hospital. Right. So it's definitely likely to be cost effective. I mean, would you think that the hospital would, would you be able to demonstrate the value to the hospital so that they would actually fund this as routine? Because if you can stop a cluster at the second patient, that must save a fortune. It does. It does. And I love Pat Harris and all the, the Australian group's papers. We, we read them with joy when they come out because, you know, it's more evidence building into, into, the, into the pile. So in our, in our retrospective paper, we intentionally tried to do this economic modeling of cost savings. Mm. So we hypothesized, you know, in this retrospective paper where we sequenced for two years, looking at the transmission routes that we hypothesized and where we could potentially intervene using literature-based effectiveness measures of these interventions, how many um, infections could we prevent and then also using literature-based um, estimations, what is the cost savings um, of preventing those infections? Mm. So a pseudomonas aeruginosa infection on average was about $24,000 to a hospital. And if you look at the cost of raw sequencing, it's about $80 an isolate. Wow. So if you're able to prevent one yeah. pseudomonas infection, you actually yeah. have high cost savings. Yeah. And through um, a partnership with some of our health policy folks uh, in this paper, we showed that in the majority of simulations we ran, 99% of these simulations, even using very loose and conservative parameters, you save money in the long run by mm. preventing these infections. And that's the type of data we're trying to build up, that yeah. it's effective, 
you save money and it's uh, feasible. Yeah, I mean, well, <laughs> I mean, that's going to be a lot, a lot less than just even the cost of the drugs, let alone all the, all the yeah, knock-on. Yeah, so, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I mean, it's definitely the future. It's absolutely fascinating. The thought of stopping outbreaks almost before they start yeah. is almost minority report type stuff, isn't it? You know, yeah. we know this, it could happen. So, And it's a matter of scale, too. If other hospitals start sequencing yeah. in this, this, this level and we're able to share that data, we can track multi-state, multi-facility outbreaks much easier. Yeah, we can catch the pseudomonas outbreak early, like you just said, the second patient. It's uh, possible. Yeah, and you are actually doing that almost locally anyway, because right, you're right. giving people back information locally about right. what's going on in there. So that's why we're hopeful that other people see this work. They see Pat Harris's work and yeah. and start you know talking to their administration about potentially starting a program. Yeah. And the price is coming down all the time as well. Isn't it? Because yeah. eighty dollars, I would have thought, is perfectly reasonable anyway right. Right. for any sort of micro type test. So you know because right. you know lab work does cost money. Right. And interpretation. So, yeah. Uh, it's been really fascinating. Yeah. I love talking to you. <laughs> you too. <laughs> Thanks we'll, so much. We'll definitely, we'll definitely be talking to you again as you produce more papers. Wonderful. And again, I said this before, but I love the podcast and it's an honor to be on as a guest. Oh, no, it's, <laughs> it's great. We yeah. just love talking to people like you, Alex. Thanks very much. Thanks, Martin. We appreciate it.